Coming up on today's show, Education Minister Adriana LaGrange joins us to talk more about the decision to send the kids back to school. Lots of Albertans very concerned over coal mining in our province, especially in the Rocky Mountains and death, pain and soaring weightless. What have we done in handling the pandemic to the healthcare concerns that existed long before COVID-19? As you know, the province uh, making the decision yesterday, making it official, all Alberta students will be headed back to class on Tuesday following the long weekend. Uh, with the exception of some students in the province's north, the regional municipality of Wood Buffalo case counts there haven't fallen quite as quickly as they have in other areas of the province. So they're going to stay out of class for at least one more week. Um, Education Minister Adriana LaGrange had an opportunity to join us earlier this morning. She's in a meeting right now, so I spoke to her just before we came on the air. Education Minister Adriana LaGrange joining us now to walk through the decision. Minister, first of all, thank you for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Good morning. You know, we're definitely seeing a, a steady, sharp decline in case counts across Alberta, but we're also being told that the positivity remains quite high and we're in a precarious position. So why did you decide it would be best to send students back at this time? Well, uh, Shay, uh, just to remind everyone and all of your listeners that the decision to go to online learning for the last two weeks was made for operational reasons, not for health reasons. And so um, we were struggling with, uh, many of our school divisions were struggling with uh, a shortage of substitute teachers, uh, as well as uh, it was affecting bus drivers and educational assistance, et cetera. Because of the high numbers within the community, it was being reflected within our schools in terms of teachers and others that were requiring to isolate. Um, I understand the, 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 the discussion around the um, operational factors leading to the closures, but we also know that we aren't going back in the north because of case counts. So is it the case counts or is it the operational factors? Well, the op- operational factors are um, are affected by the case counts. And so when you look at the north, and uh, just so that uh, to, to give you an example, um, in Wood Buffalo, um, Fort McMurray, Wood Buffalo right now, the case counts are 1,596.6 per 100,000. By comparison, Edmonton is 323.2 per 100,000. So the fact that those numbers are still quite high in the community is reflected, as I said, our, our schools are a mirror of what's going on in the community. So those cases count do, does affect the number of individuals, some teachers, et cetera, within our schools that are having to isolate if they come in contact with active cases. While we have seen in the Wood Buffalo area numbers starting to come down, they just have not trended down as quickly as other areas. And so in an abundance of caution, we want to ensure that uh, that those schools, when they do reopen, are successful. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, uh, we've uh, allowed an additional week for that to happen. Okay, so just so I'm clear then, they are still facing operational pressure in um in the north. That's that's why the decision was made. They're still having, because of the high case counts, that's My why it's operational. My understanding, yes, that's correct. Yes, one one affects the other. Okay, exactly. Gotcha. Um, now, one question that I think a lot of people have and a lot of parents and teachers and educators have is how are these decisions made? I'm certain there are some sort of metrics that you are considering and when you're making these decisions, but we haven't seen them. And the chair of Edmonton Public yesterday saying she has no idea how, how you decide when it's right to go back and saying she can't guarantee that kids won't be sent home again because she doesn't know what metrics trigger these kinds of decisions. What are the metrics that you're following in terms of when the kids go back and when they're taken out? Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm 
surprised at that statement, Bayer, because uh, we've been very transparent. I'm in constant contact with our education partners, um, including our um, our board chairs and superintendents. Um, and the metrics that we're using are high community COVID case counts, as well as high students and staff requiring to isolate within our schools, a shortage of substitute teachers and operational issues, as well as the number of schools that are requiring to, to um, go to or shift to online. So when we have, um, you know, within the purview of a school authority, they can make a decision to shift a grade or a particular um, classroom to online learning. But when uh, it requires the whole school to go, on, to, go to online, then it requires um, more contact with my, my department, myself, Alberta Health, and jointly we make the decision to shift a whole school. And when we have a number of those schools within a school uh, community, within a school division, it does start to create that operational pressure. So those are the metrics we're using. We've used them all along and we continue to use them. Um, I know for any parent with a kid in school and, uh, you know, for teachers and things like that, it's that dreaded phone call that you get finding out that someone is a close contact and you need to quarantine and you must isolate. Um, and I get the email from the school boards every day listing, you know, the dozens of cases and sometimes hundreds of students that have been pulled out of class. Are there any changes being made now that the kids are going back on Tuesday? Should parents be expecting perhaps more of those calls to come next week? And I understand how difficult it is for parents. Um, you know, I'm a mother of seven, I'm a grandmother of seven. I, I totally understand. We have 25 school days left, roughly, approximately, some, some more, some less, depending on the professional development number of days that are left in the calendar. But, you know, we have all had to pull together. The fact that our schools have been open since September where many jurisdictions across the country have had, have closed and closed tight. We have much to celebrate. Our schools are safe. There's no operational reason or health reason. Our students shouldn't be back in school right now. What we are doing is continuing with the very um, robust uh, protocols that we have in place, the masking, the cohorting, the hand sanitization, et cetera, et cetera. We are um, continuing to have our dedicated teams of contact tracers that, uh, and I'm not sure if, if people are aware of this, that we've had dedicated teams of contact tracers specifically uh, for schools so that we can provide that timely information so that we're not having to isolate larger groups than need be. We also have rapid testing, particularly Edmonton, Calgary, um, uh, Lethbridge, and Grand Prairie, which had, we've seen higher case counts. Those teams, we also have a um, trans. Um, a rapid testing that we can send to hotspot areas. We will be sending a team up to Fort McMurray so that we can get some of that asymptomatic uh, testing done prior uh, to uh, students being in the classroom. Uh, the vaccination, the fact that we are seeing more students uh, ages 12 and older that are being vaccinated as well as teachers and staff. All of these measures are layered upon all of the things that we're doing to help protect uh, our schools. Again, I want to reiterate, our schools have been safe from the beginning. They continue to be safe. And I look forward to the last uh, number of days that students will be able to really have that quality time with their, their teachers, with their peers, and, and end the year in a very, on a very positive note. So there's no additional measures being brought in for this 
short-term return, you know, to try and get us to the end of the year? It's going to be the same conditions that we've gone through with the last couple of waves, or has there been added layers? Like you say, no rapid testing, but, you know, 11,000 tests uh, that have been used so far, so a pretty small number. Is that is that the extra layer of protection that might be in place? Well, that is, is added on for sure. But again, I just want to remind everyone that the shift that we did just recently was for operational reasons, not uh, because there were health reasons within our school. Right, yeah. uh, right now, we currently have 933 active cases, um, which is 0.12% of all students and staff. You know, I have to remind everyone we're about 800,000 uh, when you add our students and our staff numbers together, we've been able to keep those numbers really low. Dr. Hinshaw has, uh, you know, indicated that um, that our numbers have been very good. Transmission within schools has been very, very low. So our schools are safe. Uh, we have um, these layers of, of, of protections um, and safety measures that we continue to use. And uh, just I remind everyone to do their part. Um, if everyone does their part, we will get to the end of the school year um, on, as I said earlier, on a very positive note. Uh, Minister LaGrange, thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. And uh, we'll chat again. Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. No doubt remember how the government did an about-face or something close to it on coal mining in Alberta following the intense, very intense public outrage uh, that ensued earlier this year. So they paused all exploration activities in the most sensitive areas, although a number of leases have already been written. In the meantime, the province announced plans to consult with Albertans on the issue before making any further decisions. They did not consult the first time around. So this week we're getting our first look at how that consultation has gone so far. And it's clear um, there's a tremendous amount of opposition to coal mining, especially in Alberta's mountains. Ian Urquhart is with uh, the Alberta Wilderness Association. He joins us now to talk a bit more about this. Good morning, Ian. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, good morning, Shay. Thanks very much for having me on. Yeah, so when we take a look at the early results of this uh, consultation the province is doing, we're seeing that still the vast, vast majority of Albertans have some very serious concerns about expanding coal mining in our province, especially when it comes to certain areas, right? Oh, absolutely. And and your listeners should underline vast because that's exactly what this what the the initial results suggest. Um it's it's it is I can't understand I used to be a political scientist at the U of A and I cannot understand the political logic that the UCP is is operating with here uh, because this is this survey suggests that 
uh, to push coal mining on the eastern slopes of the Rockies is uh, political is committing political suicide for the UCP in southern and central Alberta. Yeah, I don't think you're overstating it. When we take a look at uh, no. what we're finding out in these surveys, 90% of Albertans right across the board that have yep. responded to the survey say some areas of our province are just not appropriate for coal mining, period. Shouldn't happen. It's a huge number. No, yeah, you're absolutely right about that. And when you look at the survey and see when they then go on to identify what those effects are. So when 90% say coal mining has a major effect on me, then they detail what the effects are. They're all negative ones. Mm-hmm. I mean, there isn't, there isn't any positive one there. And then you take that and then the flip side of it, when they asked Albertans in the survey, well, what about the economic benefits yeah. of coal development? 64% say not important at all. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's that. I don't think you can have a. It's hard for me to imagine, anyways. Yeah, a si- more. Yeah, go ahead. 66% say the economic benefits are not important at all. And another 25% say they're only somewhat important. They still don't put a lot of stock in it. They're only somewhat important, very important, 7.7%, moderately important, 4%. So you know, you're looking at 11% of the the respondents to the survey who feel very strong or you know somewhat strongly or very strongly about the importance of coal you don't you don't win elections when you're catering to 11% of the electorate um and when we talk about what areas they say are should be completely off limits it's it's yeah. a pretty broad brush uh, the rockies and the foothills wildlife corridors areas near water recreation areas residential areas and areas near farms doesn't leave a whole lot of other areas there are some but even in the areas that don't fall into one of those many categories, the support still is not very strong. No, you're right. So, I mean, on the one hand, we've got you know, 90%, as you noted, 90% of respondents said there are areas where that are not appropriate for coal exploration development, and the Rockies and Foothills on the government's list anyways are right at the top of that. Now, then, as you point out, I mean, 30% felt exploration development may be appropriate for some areas of the province. But if you look at that list, Shay, there, 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 are, there are items mentioned there that are arguably part of Rockies and Foothills. So, for example, when they say Category 4 lands, which are the lands that, say, Benga Mining wants to get into in the Crow's Nest right now, well, that's also Rockies and Foothills. So, you know, I'm not sure. I'm, I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say with this is even when you look at the 30%, who say they think it could go ahead, when you look at the categories that they use as the basis for that, you can question them about, well, do the Rockies and Foothills matter to you? Mm-hmm. Of course they do. Well, Category 4 lands are Rockies and Foothills. You know, that, that's sort of, I think that's, that's an important part of this as well. Yeah, and the biggest um, impact that people seem to be concerned about is water. That, that seems Absolutely. to be the one thing that overrides this whole survey so far is the impact it's going to have on water in Alberta. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we've been, at AWA, we, we've uh, participated in and organized several virtual town halls about coal mining, you know, since, since uh, February. And I would say that, you know, for, for me listening in and listening to what people have to say, there's no doubt that water is the biggest issue. And what's also really important to note here is that if water's the most important issue, how confident are people that we have a regulatory process in place that will, 
you bet we'll deal with this in an environmentally responsible way. And again, overwhelming, 85% indicated they were, quote, not at all confident that it could be regulated in a way to ensure it's environmentally responsible. So, you know, there's no, I, I don't see, I guess I don't see this is a really big rock to be pushing uphill for, for the UCP right now. Um, you know, you have these overwhelming majorities who express their opposition. And I think what's important to note about them is the public saying or the participants in the survey say, we're either somewhat or very well informed about this issue. Mm-hmm. You know, like, so you have over 80% of the respondents saying that they're somewhat familiar or very familiar with the issue. So, you know, you can't look at this and say, oh, well, if they would only understand, if they were only more familiar, they would be more sympathetic to this. That's not what these numbers are suggesting. Yeah, and Ian, you know, I mean, just listeners are texting in, well, I mean, who, who's answering this survey? Who took this survey? Yeah. This is anybody can take this survey. It's not like a group of people opposed to coal mining sat down and took this survey. This is open yeah. consultation with all Albertans, right? Yeah, absolutely. But... But, I mean, if, if I was with the Coal Association of Canada, I would want to say to this, well, you know, really what you've got here is just all the opponents came right. out in mass and the supporters stayed home. But, and this is crucial, um, when you do look at a representative survey that was like, a, you know, a good social scientist doing what good social scientists should do, and that is having a representative sample of Albertans. So Think HQ, polling company here in Alberta, published a poll in February, what did they find? 69% of survey respondents disapproved of coal mining in the Rockies and 49% strongly disapproved allowing any mining there. So, you know, whether you're doing it by, um, you know, by by just, you want to participate in the coal consultation, here's an opportunity. Whether you're looking at that audience or whether you're looking at a representative sample of Albertans, the message is the same. You know, they we just don't want it. Uh, they just don't want it. And when you look, say, the other thing, like from the political point of view, like when you look at the geographical distribution in the survey, so 91% of the respondents came from or identified as central or southern Alberta. This is this is bedrock conservative territory. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, these are parts of Alberta where ranchers would come out of their graves in the past to vote to vote conservative. And when you've got this much opposition from the South and Central, again, it's 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 suicidal in my view. If I was a UCP political strategist, this would be a, a huge red flag that we really have to abandon this altogether. Well, I think that message has been received for the province to walk back and pause what they had yeah. done earlier. Clearly, they yeah. recognize that the opposition is something that needs to be considered. Yeah, no, that's true. I do think, too, I mean, you know, it's hard to, It's I have to be careful about what I read into what either the minister or Dr. Wallace or the committee says. But I, I do think that Dr. Wallace has a view where he he will entertain the idea that no coal mining at all on the eastern slopes is an option. I don't get that vibe from Minister Savage. Um, she, she continues to talk about a modern coal policy as if there's some way that we can sell Albertans that the risks are worth the small economic mm-hmm. benefits we're going to get from this. 
So, I, you know, clearly, I mean, a group like AWA hopes that we're reading uh, the committee right and we're reading Dr. Wallace right and that that's where they end up on this. But they just say, you know, a modern coal policy in Alberta should be a no coal policy in Alberta. Ian, thank you for your time this morning. Great insight. Okay. Okay, great, Shay. Thanks very much for having me on. You, you take good care. Yeah, you too. Thanks very much. Okay, bye-bye. That's Ian Urquhart of the Alberta Wilderness Association. Doctor, thank you for yeah. joining us. Um, same topic, and we're still having the same discussion. Um, we, we know that it's been, it's been a dire situation for a long time in Canada, and a lot of people on waiting lists, um, but we're starting to get a better understanding now of just what this pandemic has meant. Um, literally, thousands and thousands and thousands of Canadians have been told they'll just have to wait longer, correct? That's right, yeah. Um, I mean, it's important to understand, too, that wait lists are not just about the time that patients are waiting from yeah. after they've seen the surgeon to the actual surgery itself. People are waiting longer to get in to see specialists as well because of the pandemic. They're waiting longer to get their screening test done, for example, breast cancer, things like that. So it's kind of a domino effect that trickles back through the whole healthcare system that's going to take a long time and a, and a lot of uh, smart minds to figure out how to fix. Right, exactly. Now, let's just talk about the situation that we're in. We know waiting lists were an issue for a number of different procedures. Um, how much worse has it gotten over the past year or so? Well, it's it, it the actual numbers of cases are, don't really tell the, the tale of, of how much of a challenge we're facing because we've been able to, through very, some very creative management of our wait list, we've been able to take care of a lot of very um, you know minor day surgery type of procedures. Sure. So the people that are waiting longer are those that are expecting to, or, or we're expecting to have uh, to, to be in hospital quite a bit longer, complex abdominal wall reconstructions, hip, knee surgery, that sort of thing. So, so these patients are are going to be become uh, more of the uh, more commonly things that we have to look after when we're able to get back to, up to full speed again. So, um, though, and and that will create more of a problem as these patients, uh, you know, wait longer for surgery. Yeah, I was surprised to hear just how. Serious sounding, at least. I mean, I'm no doctor, but some of the things that people have been waiting for and have had surgeries pushed back for, like like cancer tumor removal, things like like things that you would think are fairly dire and urgent cases, have had to be shelved, right? Yeah, to a certain extent, that's true. Although I, I will say that for the most part, we make every effort, uh, in some cases, heroically, to get these patients looked after. So, for example, breast cancers, we are able to get in and get them cared for. Um, because they're most of them are day surgeries, but um, where it starts to c- cause problems is the you know complex colon cancer cases like that that mm-hmm. may actually have to wait a little longer um, you know to be cared for. Um, it's important to know that we are doing everything we can to get these patients looked after um, and and doing everything we can to minimize the impact of this pandemic on them. But it does create a lot of problems that trickles down through the whole system for sure. So when we try and dig our way out of this, um, what's you know what kind of plan can we put in place? What is the strategy to try and make up with the uh, deal with the backlog? Well, that's the real. That's going to be the real challenge because um, the problems that we faced with. Uh, with backing up patients for surgery is that we're going to need to inject more resources into the system. Um, And that's a lot more complicated than just opening up an operating room. You need to staff the operating rooms. And more importantly, we have a basically a crippling shortage of anesthesiologists in in Edmonton and and I I believe in Calgary as well because of the um, issues that have been going on with with the government. Uh, A lot of people have left or have chosen not to stay 
um, in our province to work. So when we get back up and running again, full tilt, uh, we're going to need more people and we're going to need more funding. And then after we get caught up on the backlog, then what do we do with those people? Um, you know, because, uh, and that's why I think a long-term solution for this is going to be um, figuring out a way to shorten wait lists and keep people working on it as a long-term solution. But it's going to require funding. It's going to require more resources, nurses, respiratory therapists, anesthesiologists, and surgeons um, to, to be able to take care of this. Well, that's the thing that I, I found kind of interesting is, you know, the discussion is, well, we'll operate the, uh, the ORs 24-7. We'll have these things going around the clock. But somebody's got to be in there actually doing the procedures. It's not just the, the building, right? And there's a, like you say, you're going to need to staff these ORs 24-7. Well, that, I mean, that's a, a really good point, Shay, because, you know, as it stands right now, most of, I work at the Grey Nuns Hospital, yeah. um, with the exception of one or two rooms, uh, all of them are mothballed from 3.30 till 7 o'clock in the morning the next day because we, we can't keep them running without people. And without uh, without more people, I mean, we're already we're already exhausted. We're already tired um, trying to keep up with what's going on. And, and to ask us to do more, uh, inevitably on evenings and weekends, when we're already pushed to the limit, is just it's it's not a realistic expectation. Um, and the only way to the only solution is going to be more people, more funding, more resources, and that's a that's a reality. That's the snowball that's coming yeah. down the hill right now. Now you're a general surgeon, but I, I know that there must be surgeons who, let's say, hip and knee replacements, and and let's and and those have been curtailed or, or shelled or whatever the case may be. Are there surgeons that are basically underemployed or unemployed as we've gone through this pandemic? Well, I think what we've seen, I can speak more to my own practice, but what we've seen is, is a shift in, in priorities. So, um, as I mentioned, there's a, a wait list of people to getting in to see me, and then there's a wait list of people after I've seen them to, to get in for surgery. Sure. So, we've been able to, through some very creative management of our of our offices, we've been able to provide some virtual care to people, some consultation services. Um, but we, on a, any given week or day, uh, we're... we're seeing our ORs mothballed uh, and not, you know, at, at my hospital anyways, uh, and not, you know, so so there are some days that are just free, that I'll free up and, and do other things to, to provide patient care. But but um, the, to a certain, I mean, we've all seen our incomes uh, and our, our businesses suffer, just like other Albertans in the, in the province, uh, as a result of the pandemic. Um, and once we get back up and running again, it's it's going to be challenging for everybody in terms of trying to make it all work. Yeah, it's going to be a big hill to climb. Uh, doctor, thanks so much for mm-hmm. your time this morning. I appreciate it. You're very welcome, Shay. That is Dr. Michael Chatney, a general surgeon at the Grey Nuns Hospital in Edmonton. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.